Good morning, church family. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you all this morning. do want to invite you to our family fun day on the 30th. Uh, for any bad sermons that I preach, you can throw one of those very uh, uh, padded balls right at me. Now, you probably won't be able to hit me, but you can at least give it your best shot. The other thing I want to mention is we've got some World Changer shirts on sale. Um, they're $12.00. And they go to benefit our, our children's program's missions fund. And I would really love for you to contribute by buying a World Changer shirt and having some really cool representation in our community for what God is doing through WFR and through our children's ministry. Uh, we've been talking through Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You can turn your Bible to Acts chapter 1. I'll be speaking out of Acts chapter 4. But we've been giving you some qualities of a world changer. World changers are certainly people who are willing to go to their Jerusalem, then to Judea, then Samaria, and then to the outermost parts of the world. And WFR is a church that is a missionally minded church. Uh, we love God, we love others, and we are about sharing Jesus in our Jerusalem, in our community. We've got so many ministries um, that, that, that connect with needs in our community. You take a step outside of our community regionally, we have ministries that focus on the regional needs of our country. And then our Samaria, where there's brokenness and there's um, sadness and there's sickness and, and there's people who would feel like castaways. We've got ministries that focus on that. And just like Ryan showed us this morning, this church locally sends people absolutely to the outermost parts of the world, right on the front lines of what God is doing worldwide. And, and we're working towards our mission Sunday on the 7th, where we can really contribute to what God is doing through WFR Church. This morning, I want to talk to you about boldness. World changers have a world-changing boldness. And sometimes the most bold people that I know are my own kids, are my own children. Um, I have trained my sons to, to treat the ladies in our house like I treat them. And we honor them. We speak well of them. Whenever my bride asks me, uh, honey, how do I look in this? I always say she looks beautiful because to me, she always does. Okay. But if she wants the real truth, she asks my daughter, who says, Mom, your hair ain't exactly on point today. Uh, my daughter is bold. My, my, my daughter will say, Mom, that doesn't really look the, the right way on your figure. And I'm like, here's, it looks great. So kids are extremely bold. And I talked to you last week about compassion. And I had a, a, two thoughts on, on the, the, the way compassion and boldness interact. I think... Too much compassion without enough boldness makes you soft and ineffective when you are on mission. Too much compassion without enough boldness makes you soft and ineffective when you're on mission. Too much boldness without enough compassion makes you come across as a little bit arrogant and disconnected. And I want to the value of blending those two together in equal parts today. Some of you err on the side of being a little bit too soft, and some of you err on the side of being a little bit too rigid, and I want you to find a really good balance between compassion and boldness. Of the 40 times, 
Uh, the word for boldness is translated in the New Testament as boldness. Almost half of those appear in the book of Acts. What God's telling us this morning is that to be on mission, to build God's church, and to transform lives, you have to be bold. You've got to be bold. You've got to step out of your comfort zone, pass through your grown zone, and get into your growth zone. That's what Larry Bowles was talking about this morning. And in Acts chapter 4, we're going to see what that looks like in real time in the early church. So I'm in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to go verses 13 through 20, and I'm reading out of the ESV. It accurately translates that Greek word for boldness in the 13th verse that I want to focus on. So if you're reading another translation, it may not be exactly the same as the one I'm reading this morning. The Bible says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been... With Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them. To speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, the Bible says this, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And the Bible is very clear in that text what the qualifications for boldness are. Now, sometimes in terms of learning what you really need in life, you have to first learn what you don't need. To learn what you really need in life, sometimes you have to first learn what you do not need in your life. Kirsten and I learned this about five years ago. And can I just share with you that it was a very difficult lesson for us to learn some things that we do not need in life. Don't go to that next slide yet. Wait just a second. Kirsten and I, every uh, Christmas, would go back and visit family. And and we, at one moment in time, had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn when we would go back and visit family. And when we would go back and visit family, church friends, it felt like we had to pack the entire house to make that nine-hour trip from Monroe, Louisiana to Wichita, Kansas. This is an actual picture of Kirsten and I headed to Kansas for a visit over Christmas. See if you got. See if you guys can go to that next slide. There's a picture of Kirsten and I headed to Kansas. This is actual footage of what our vehicle looked like, okay? Uh, we thought we needed to take everything and the kitchen sink on our way to Kansas to visit family with a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-way. And I praise the name of Jesus that we learned over time we didn't need to take all of that stuff with us to make that journey. 
Sometimes learning what you need in life involves first learning what you don't need. Let me, let me unpack some of this text from Acts chapter 4. There are two things that you do not need in life to be bold. The first thing that our text mentions is you don't need an education. In verse 13, when the people were, were listening to Peter and John, they saw two qualities in Peter and John that surprised them. The first thing they see in Peter and John is that these guys were not educated. I want to tell you this morning that you don't need an education to be bold. You don't have to know what the greatest theologians have said about every passage of Scripture. You don't have to be able to quote the whole Bible. You don't have to have a college degree or a Ph.D. or an M.D. or a J.D. You don't have to have studied under the most qualified people on the planet. You don't need an education to be bold. And it's really easy in the culture that we live in to try to size yourself up by the greatest blogging preacher on the planet or the best educated theologian who's written 50 or 60 books and to think to ourselves, you know what, I don't have those same levels of education. I better just keep my mouth shut. That is a lie. You don't need an education to be bold. Second thing you don't need. In verse 13, the people listening to Peter and John realize these guys are uneducated And they are common men. You do not need to be uncommon to be bold. So those of you who know me know that I have always had a fantasy of being a professional football player. Okay? And I know looking at me, you think, man, Trent, I'm surprised that didn't work out for you. (laughs) And can I just say God bless you for that? I really appreciate that. So I've always had this fantasy of being a pro football player and it, it never worked out for me. God called me into a different career. Uh, and I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to train with a guy named Tim Tebow. And Tim Tebow was in town. He was doing some charity work. I got in touch with him. He wanted to exercise. And I was like, well, dude, I'm about it. Let me take you to go exercise. And I thought, you know what? Today is the day I'm going to learn whether or not I have what it took or takes to be a professional athlete, because I'm going to be side by side with Tim Tebow in the gym grinding, and I'm going to get to see what he can do and compare it to what I can do. And if that's pretty even, I'll assume, hey, I really might could have done it or maybe even can do it. So, so we get to the gym, and this, this was one of the most humiliating, embarrassing experiences of my entire life. Can I tell you that? Uh, we get to the gym, and, and he's doing some jogging, and I'm standing right next to him, and I am just sucking air. <gasps> and I managed to say in between breaths, what percentage of your max effort are you putting out right now? And he looks over at me like he is lounging in a couch on a, on a chair. He was like, this is about 40, 50 percent of what I'm capable of. And the guy just shifts into another gear and just takes off. And I thought to myself in that moment, man, this is an uncommonly genetically gifted dude. There is no way I could ever compete with guys on this level. While it was embarrassing and humiliating, it was really life-giving to me to think, you know what, that's why I was never given opportunities to do anything big athletically, because I just don't have those uncommon gifts. But you don't have to have any uncommon gifts to be bold for Jesus Christ. 
You don't have to be an uncommonly gifted teacher to speak boldly for Jesus Christ. You don't have to be an uncommonly gifted counselor to point somebody to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as the solution to what they're dealing with. How about this? You don't have to have an uncommon level of self-discipline to live the type of moral lifestyle that without speaking any words is a bold testimony that points people to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think so often we misunderstand 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter puts it like this. The divine power of God has given us, listen to this, everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. What's Peter thinking in the moment God inspires him to write that text? He's thinking of himself. He's thinking there is nothing uncommon about me. There is nothing overly educated about me. I don't have talents or gifts or abilities or traits or qualities that make me exceptional in any way. And he realizes I don't need any of that stuff to be bold for my God and my Savior. Because his divine power, what Peter has realized, has given him every single thing he needs to be bold and on mission for his Lord. And God can give you every single thing you need to be bold and on mission for him. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise this morning. So if if you don't need to be educated or uncommon, I really don't think you need much of anything, if I'm being honest with you, because I think it all comes from God. Here's the one thing that you do need, and I'm going to build everything I'm going to say the rest of this sermon off this one point. The one thing you do need is to keep things really, really simple and have, and have an I-can't-stop passion for Jesus. There's a company called Apple, Apple Computers. i got a slide for you up on the screen. Steve Jobs, CEO of Apple, decides that the one thing his company is going to focus on is simplicity. And he has a famous quote that's not originally his. Leonardo da Vinci actually said something similar. And other people have said things similar to this over time. But Steve Jobs says this. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. In recovery, we use the phrase K-I-S-S, keep it simple, silly, to emphasize this principle. Now, some of us say a different word for silly, but I got a 10, 8, and 6-year-old in my house. And we don't say that other word. Can I get an amen? We say silly, all right? Some of y'all out there sinning because I said silly and that other word crossed through your brain. Lord, in the name of Jesus, forgive those sinners in the house that, that had that naughty word go through their brain. Keep it simple, silly. Steve Jobs, when the first iPod came out, I read an article in Inc. Magazine on this this week. His, uh, his creative developers, his engineers, they come in and they bring this small device that can hold hundreds of songs on it and it fits right into your pocket. And they bring it to Steve Jobs. They worked hundreds of hours, spent hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars on, on this one device. They're in his office and they're just bragging on it. It's so small, it's so effective, it's so everything we hoped it would be and more. And he grabs the device and he walks over to a fish tank and he drops it in the fish tank. And everybody in the room just, they can't believe what he's done. And he says, you see that? 
and bubbles are slowly coming out of this device. And probably through tears, the engineers and the creative directors and all the people who put this hardware together are like, yeah, we see it. You just toss this beautiful device in a fish tank. And he's like, no, no, no. That there are bubbles coming out of this thing means there's still space that you don't need in the device. Go back and do it over again. What he's trying to tell him there is he wants it simpler. He wants it smaller. He wants it less sophisticated and more easy to use. And sometimes in our spiritual lives, we can so overcomplicate things. I've got a picture here of what Steve Jobs and Apple did with the uh, desktop PC. And I've got its comparison from another computer company right beside it. And you can see the difference there in simplicity. And I think it's also a critical point to bring forth this morning that what is simple is not always what's easy. What's simple is not always what's easy. So, so here's the premise that I want to give to you this morning. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 20, the one thing that you do need that, that, that will keep it simple in your life and help you learn to be bold, the one thing that you do need is an I can't stop passion for the Lord Jesus. I was talking to some of our staff and I was like, you know, when I say that, I want our sound guys to play that song by Flux Pavilion that's like, and you guys hopefully will know the song. They're not going to play it because they didn't think it was a good idea. But it's like, I can't stop, stop, stop. Dun, 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 dun. You guys don't know the song. They thought, they thought you wouldn't know it and that it wouldn't play well. But I promise you it's a, it's, it, it would have it played well if you knew the song. All right? And so the whole, the whole point here is that if you will have an I-can't-stop love and passion for Jesus, it'll, listen to this, it will take care of everything else in your life. If you have an I-can't-stop passion for Jesus, two scriptures that I don't have on the screen this morning that I want you to write down, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9. Jeremiah says this, If I say I will not mention the name of God or speak anymore in His name, His message will become a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones, and I will become weary of holding it in and think it will consume me. That is an I can't stop passion for God. Jeremiah is saying, I literally cannot... Because I love God that much, because my passion for God so compels me to share God, to talk about God, to teach about God, to love with the love of God. I just can't stop or I feel like I'm going to spontaneously combust. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 puts it like this in verse 16. When I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast. Because I am obligated to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, I can't help myself. I just can't stop speaking about the name of Jesus. I just can't stop telling people about the love Jesus has for me and the love he has for me. I just can't. He can't do it. When you have that level of passion... In your life, here's a couple of things that I was thinking as I was considering that kind of life. If you have an I can't stop passion for Jesus in your life, your spouse's behavior 
matters less when you have that kind of passion in your life. When my spouse doesn't meet my needs, when my spouse says a hurtful word or does a profoundly painful thing, and my heart and mind is so focused on Jesus that I just can't stop praising Him, that I just can't stop worshiping Him, that I just can't stop loving others the way He loves me, that I just can't stop telling people about Him. My, my spouse's behavior matters less, and my marriage improves because my well-being is not based on my spouse. If I have an I-can't-stop passion for the Lord, my money and my financial situation... Matters a lot less. If I can't stop spending money in ways that glorify God or contributing to things that are going to get the message of the cross out or being a steward of what God's given me for the purpose of spreading the message, if I just can't stop putting my money where my mouth is and putting my money where God's calling me to, then my financial situation matters less. And you know what? It'll improve. It will totally improve. Every And I could have kept going with that, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move forward. Can I just say, I can't, I can't, I couldn't imagine an area of your life that wouldn't dramatically transform if you had this kind of passion in your life. So there's three things I think I want you to do that I would call the boldness formula. And if you'll put these into practice in your life... You'll be a better balanced Christian in terms of the balance between compassion and boldness. First thing required in the boldness formula, you've got to learn to overcome fear. You've got to learn to overcome fear. Let me give you a text from Exodus chapter 14. God's people are imprisoned in Exodus. There's a long story involved in how they got there, but they were slaves. And a man named Moses leads them out of captivity from Egypt as God's prophet and disciple and leader of God's people. But it's not like Moses just waltzes into Egypt and says, hey, this army of slaves that has helped you build your empire, uh, they're God's people. I want them to come with me back to the land that God has promised them and has prepared for them so that they can establish themselves as a nation. Thanks. Great to see you. We'll see you later. That doesn't happen without a fight. And God sends plagues into Egypt and eventually Pharaoh decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get these guys out of here. And that kind of culminates with the Passover. And so in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 8, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh as the Israelites are leaving so that he pursues the Israelites who were marching out, but they weren't just marching out. They weren't just like, hey, we'll see you later. Hey, thanks a lot, but no thanks. You know, glad we'll never be back. Good riddance. Catch you on the flip. Hasta la vista. These guys were marching out boldly. They were marching out of their captivity boldly. They had received their marching orders from God. And God said, you're in a land you're not supposed to be. You're being ruled by a king you're not supposed to be ruled by. You're in prison because of sin that's now behind you. And I'm ready for you to live free. 
I'm ready for you to live under my lordship. I'm ready for you to live worshiping me as king. I'm ready for you to live in a land that I've declared as yours. And I'm ready for you to march on out of that place. And he wants them to march out with their chests proud and their chins up and their heads held high. And God is calling some of you out of the same kinds of prisons you've been in for years. Serving a king that's not the true God. In a land that God hasn't called you to dwell in. You're dwelling in a land of shadows and sinfulness and darkness. And God's saying, I don't want you to live in that land anymore. I want you to come live in the land of light, the land of truth, the land of promise, the land that I prepared for you to live in from the start. And I don't want you to hang on to your captivity. I don't want you to walk away from that land of darkness serving the false king with your head low and your chest pointed down to the ground, sad that you're fixing to get set free from that life of sin. But some of us, when we receive our marching orders from God away from the sinfulness and captivity we've been living in into the land of peace under the king of freedom, it's like we're sad about it. But you know what? There is some type of prison in the familiar. I've said this before, there's some sort of twisted sense of security in familiar pain. That's not my quote originally, that's a a big book that I still read about once a year. Because I was in that land of captivity, in that place of captivity. And I understand the fear in the unknown. And how sometimes it's easier to stay in the darkness and, and sinfulness I've been in than to really risk living a life of freedom in the light. And that probably sounds sad to some of you or strange to some of you who already have that I can't stop passion for Jesus in your life who are already living in the land of promise under the lordship of the king of freedom. That sounds strange to you. But to those of us who have been in captivity for our whole lives, it sounds really strange to think You're telling me there's a land of promise under the king of freedom that I can live in light and truth and hope and peace for the rest of my life? It can't be. And I want you to know this morning that God has given you marching orders to get out of that place. And he wants you to march out with a boldness. Now, if you'd read ahead in the story, the Israelites don't exactly get it right. Okay, They get scared. And in the midst of their fear, God doesn't go, that's it. Your head is hung low. Your chest is no longer proud. You want to go back to that land of darkness under the king of lies and captivity? That's it. I'm giving up on you. No. What does God end up doing? God ends up going forward with them. God ends up going in front of them and says, Moses ends up saying, don't be afraid. Don't Don't be worried about this new land. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians will see today. You will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. What that looks like to me, that being still, is about trusting the Lord enough to take the risk to surrender to Him. Being still is about trusting the Lord enough to being willing to take the risk of being obedient to Him. And if you do that, your fear will be replaced by faith. Your fear will be replaced by faith and you'll be led away from captivity and able to march boldly on mission for God.
Not only do I want you to, to learn to overcome your fear, I also want you to learn your passion and live it. I want you to learn your passion. I want you to live it. Genesis 18.31. There's a guy named Abraham. And God says, I'm fixing to destroy this place called Sodom and Gomorrah. It is just a nasty, sin-sick place. And I'm going to kill everybody there. In Genesis 18.31, Abraham says, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 people can be found there? And God said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Abraham's passion is people. Abraham's personal passion is people. And when God says, I'm going to destroy this place, Abraham is like, God, would you destroy this place if there are 50 righteous people in there? And God says, okay, if there's 50, I won't destroy it. And Abraham's like, well, for the sake of five less, surely you wouldn't destroy it if there's 45. God's like, no, I won't destroy it if there's 45. And Abraham says again, well, what if there's only 40? God's like, okay, if there's 40, I won't. And then he drops down by 10. Well, what if there's 30? And God says, you know what? For 30 righteous people, and Abraham's like, okay, but what about if there's 20? God, what if there's only 20? And that's the point where I'm going, dude, Abraham, this has gone from bargaining into the land of boldness. Like, you're definitely treading on some thin ice right here, homeboy. At 20, Abraham, and Abraham knows that about himself. By the time he asks if there's 20 people, he's going, all right, Lord. I understand that I am crossing over from the land of bargaining into the land of boldness. And now I have been so bold as to speak to you. What if only 20 can be found there? Abraham was a lover of people. How do I know that? Well, I think the text speaks for itself that he's willing to bargain with God for the sake of what ends up being just a few. But here's the principle even even deeper than that. Abraham really loved God with an I-can't-stop passion. And you can't love God with that kind of passion and not also love people. It's impossible. So one way to assess, do I really have an I-can't-stop passionate love for Jesus, is to ask yourself, are there any people on planet Earth that I just cannot stand? And if that's true for you, then your passion for the Lord is not where it needs to be. Here's another truth about this idea. You can't be bold in someone else's passion. That's why I think it's so critical to find yours. Because at the moment, Abraham's like, Lord, what if there's only 30? If it's not his passion, he's going to stop right there before he's really taken it to the finish line. But because his passion is a love for people, he doesn't stop at 30. He also doesn't stop at 20. He stays bold and on mission, even when things get a little bit tough, even when he gets a little bit uncomfortable, even when the road ahead of him is unclear. He stays bold because it's his passion. You've got to find your passion and you've got to live it out. And, I, and I'll tell you this about passion. Real passion is never, ever, 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 ever. It's never, ever based in the natural. Real passion is never based in the natural. And I think this is also true in my personal experience. Real passion always involves some measure of helping another person. It could be helping another person sing. It could be helping another person's marriage. But I think passion, as a rule, involves helping someone else 
It definitely can't be based in the natural. If your passion is based in the natural, it's something you like. It's not something you're passionate about. I don't care how much you like the LSU Tigers. That's not your passion. I don't care how much you like St. Louis Cardinals. I don't even know if they still have a team team anymore. Uh, Or the Chicago Cubs. You know, can you really just win one World Series in that long and still even classify yourself as an MLB baseball team? I don't know. You know, I honestly don't. But your passion can't be based in the natural. It has to be based on the spiritual. If it's natural, it's something you like. If it's spiritual, it can be your passion. Last thing I want to mention, and I'm going to close. Three ingredients. You've got to learn to overcome fear. You've got to learn your passion, and you've got to live it. It's got to be yours. And the third thing is you have to learn to stick with it. You've got to learn to be tenacious. You've got to learn to be tough. You've got to stick with it. If you go to Acts 28, last chapter in the book of Acts, last couple of verses, I want to read you verse 30 and 31. Now we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Where he was at, I'm, I don't, for the sake of time, I'm not going to explain too much here. Where he was at, he lived for two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And without hindrance, a couple of things I want to say. First is, two years is long enough for the people he was ministering in to find out who he really was. Two years was long enough for the people he was ministering to to find out who he really was. If you're living on mission for Christ, I promise you will be tested. Ministry is going to test you. And if you are not fully surrendered to Christ, you are going to be found out. Ministry is going to test you. If you are living on mission, you're in ministry. And ministry is going to test you. And if you're not surrendered to Christ, you're going to be found out. What was the Apostle Paul found out to be? He was found out to be the kind of man that had an I-can't-stop passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. What does this look like in the life of the Apostle Paul? Acts 14, 19 through 20. Let me give you the story. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They won over the crowd Paul was preaching to. They then stoned the Apostle Paul. They drug him outside of the city and they thought he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he gets up and he goes back into that same city. That's an I can't stop passion. I am literally stoned to death, drug outside of a city that I was preaching in. People surround me and are praying for me because they think I'm actually dead. And I get up by the strength and power of God. (laughs) Can you imagine somebody waking up for their funeral like, man, those people that just tried to kill me, i got to get back to their house and preach and teach to them and love on them. That's what Paul did at that moment in Acts 14. He goes back into the same city he was stoned in and preaches. The only way to stick with it in life for real is to be fully surrendered to Jesus with an I can't stop passion. For him. Paul's passion for the Lord simply outweighed the pressure that he was under. And that's the power of that kind of passion. There's no, pressure, there's no pressure you'll be under that will take you under if you're on that kind of passion for Jesus. Second truth about this, for also from Acts 28, he welcomed, listen to that phrase, all who came to them. Not only did Paul live in the same place long enough at this point for the people he was ministering to to find out who he really 
was. He lived in the same place long enough to find out who they really were too. And the Greek word used for welcome in the New Testament here doesn't mean to welcome. Like some people come to your house. If, if you invite me for dinner, I thought about this. Some of you are going to welcome me in, but it is not really going to be like a, Trent, I'm glad you're here. It's going to be like a, Trent, I've heard about your appetite, and I'm worried you're fixing to eat us out of house and home. But go ahead and come on in because you're a preacher, and we can't really say you're not welcome here. Okay? It wasn't that kind of a welcome. The text here is gladly receive. It wasn't a begrudging, fake welcome. It was a genuine gladness. And you can't be that genuinely glad to receive others in the name of Jesus, no matter who they are, if they're repented for hidden sins that you haven't surrendered in Christ, or if you don't have that same kind of a passionate, I can't stop. And if, if you will put our God's Son Jesus at the center of your life, and you will live with an I can't stop passion, it's going to take care of both of those things I talked about today. It's going, to, it's going to make you compassionate, but it's also going to make you bold. And if you're compassionate and bold and you balance those two right, you are going to change the world. And that's what God's calling you to do. I'm going to close in prayer. I invite you to come forward this morning. And if there is a need in your life, you need to be more passionate about Jesus. I hope you've been challenged today. I have. I hope you've been challenged. I hope you'll come forward and ask in front of all your church family, God, fill me with more passion so that I can be the kind of man or woman that changes the world. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I come before you just so grateful for your word, grateful for your son, grateful for the opportunity we have to be totally on fire for you with an I can't stop passion. When we live with that passion, we're going to be bold because we just can't not be. And I ask any here under the sound of my voice who need to be more passionately in love with you will be called to do that this morning. And I ask that in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Please come forward this morning while together we stand and sing.